0: It wasn't like, I have to do this. It just happened. I just all of a sudden became a different person than I was in my teenage and early 20s.
1: You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. If you've ever been to Shelburne Orchards, chances are you've seen or been lucky enough to meet Nick Coles. He's the owner of The Orchard and a well-known face in Vermont. Nick has spent most of his life at Shelburne Orchards, which his father purchased in the 1950s. Nick loved growing up there, and when you visit The Orchard, it's easy to see why. Just before he opened for the season this month, Nick and I met at The Orchard's brandy cellar. We were surrounded by wooden barrels that were holding thousands of gallons of apple brandy. Here's Nick.
0: The actual... Original orchard was Silver Fox Orchard that was our neighbor when I was really young. And my dad wanted to retire. My father was an architect. And it was a piece of land right on the lake. It wasn't actually on the lake, the orchard part, but we lived right there next to it. We had a house on the lake. And my dad bought the orchard from Albert Thompson in the mid-50s. So
1: how old were you? I was a little probably kid?
0: five, six, seven in there. I don't remember yeah. the date, but... And there were six of us kids, and it was like my dad was thinking, well, this was perfect. We'll just put the kids to work and this, you know. So we grew up, and he turned it into a pick-your-own orchard, and we packed probably 20%. percent i want to use that number. That was pick-your-own. The rest were picked and trucked down to Shoreham, where they were stored and packed and sold. So... The apple, so in the wintertime that we didn't have after harvest was over it was it was all over and and my dad loved it. It was something he just fell into and something we all grew up with him doing and so it was cool. I enjoyed his enjoyment of it as a young kid I totally it was contagious how much he was a person that studied you know really studied things and learned about grafting and learned about nutrition and he didn't know any of that stuff he was an architect and but he jumped into it so we all grew up with him doing that and that was cool and and pick your own we used to hand bags out when we were little kids and we'd count the cash at night you know from the pick your own and back then it was like three dollars a bushel you know it was so it was a lot of counting ones and stuff. But, <laughs> but we were part of it, and it, was, and it was cool. And making cider, we'd all help make cider and jug the cider. It, it was nothing like it is now, but it was still a community-based thing, and people from the community came, pick your own. And my dad started the Senior Citizens Days. Back then, it was free for seniors. It wasn't until I took it over in 1975 that I started charging the seniors. Oh, okay. Well, there were so many. I mean, it got to be such a big thing. And I was like, man, you know, even the cost of the bags was going up and so forth. In any case, so I grew up with it. Yeah.
1: And your dad was an architect yes. before?
0: he was an architect his whole, you know, all the way through. His whole life. Yeah.
1: And so you live next to the orchard. Yeah. And then he was just like, oh, I want to, he, was he studying apples before he bought? no. He just kind of came in and decided to wing it? Well, he did an amazing job. Yeah. Wow.
0: And he grew... So the original orchard was planted in 1910, and there was like 500 trees, big, old... The old standard trees, that like the trees were huge, and they would just spread out for an acre. You know, the whole... The branches would go out for just... They were huge old trees. And when he started planting trees... They were the first of the semi-dwarf trees, which now are the trees in the orchard. The old Macintosh trees are were the original semi-dwarf, and they're big trees. And back then, they would they didn't know how long. They said that those semi-dwarfs only would probably last for like 30 years. But that's like 60 years ago, and they're still going strong, so that no one really knows. <laughs> But so since I've had it, we started planting even more smaller dwarf trees on trellis rows and so forth. So we have on the same footprint that my dad had 2,000 trees, we have over 8,000 trees. But now we're going back to planting them on the old larger semi dwarf not the big standards but the larger ones just they're more resilient to drought they're more resilient to fire blight and some of the other diseases the apple tree diseases and stuff and pick your own people really like to be in the big old trees it's, it feels like an orchard not yeah not like a grape vineyard
1: right <laughs> yeah definitely how long does an apple tree live for
0: well that's the thing no one really knows those old trees that were 100 years old in two thousand and ten, I was taking them out because their space I had to take them out because a lot of them had died, and I couldn't just replace trees in the spacings those old trees were thirty feet apart you know we're placing now the trees we're planting them like three feet apart, you know, so I had to wait till a certain amount of them were gone and then just take out the whole block the rest of them out. Mm-hmm and restructure and put the rows closer together and, and so forth but so they're all gone unfortunately there would still be some alive now you know but most of them had died
1: and there's what 60 acres here is that right
0: yeah we have 100 acres all but actual canopy it's about 40 acres actually of canopy of trees but 60 acres, because there's little fields here and there. And you're like.
1: And how many acres can people pick apples on? Like when you open to the public in September? All of it. All of it. Yeah. Wow. There
0: are some sections that are just planted in those old heirloom cider varieties for the yeah. brandy. that No one really wants those apples anyway, but...
1: Okay, so when you were growing up here, you talked a little bit about this. And there were six kids? Yeah. Are you one of six? Yes. What order? What, are you the oldest?
0: I'm the second to the youngest.
1: Second to the youngest. Okay. So big family.
0: Big family, and yeah, we all kind of were part of it, more or less. As we got older, you know, everybody, I was the only one that stuck around.
1: Were you really into it as a kid? No, more than
0: the rest of my brothers. And even, like, through my teens and early 20s, you know, I went to California like everybody did back in the 60s. (laughs) And it wasn't until the early... 70s that my parents booked it out of here. They went and ran an inn down in the Turks and Caicos Islands and they put the place up for sale. And I was living down in Manchester working as a carpenter, heard that the orchard was for sale through the grapevine. I didn't even hear from my parents. And they were in the the Caribbean and back then you couldn't get a hold you know you couldn't get a hold of them very easily so I knew there's only one person in Burlington that was a realtor that would have this but what happened to me was I didn't realize that when I found out because this place would have sold in an instant and gotten developed in homes it's a you know we get calls all the time for that it snapped my head around when I heard that it was for sale it was like no way, this is going to happen. And I didn't really know it as much as I did in that moment that, no, this is this is not going to happen. I was going to keep it going. And it was cool because it was in the, those moments that it really defined the rest of my life because I've been at it ever since, keeping the orchard from being sold.
1: <laughs> what year was that?
0: That was like 74, 75, yeah.
1: And you were working as a carpenter? Down in southern Vermont? Yes. Yeah. And then you booked it right back up here? Yes. Okay. What was the orchard like back then? Like now you have, I mean, it's mostly all trees and some fields. And There was
0: the old packing shed up on on the second floor of the attic of it was a place I turned into a home. It really was a barn that you could live up in up above. It wasn't heated down below. And so, yeah, I moved into that, and we didn't have the storage building. The apples still had to get picked and trucked down to showroom.
1: I mean, it has that feeling. Like, you come here, and it doesn't, not that orchards seem like these big commercial enterprises, at least not in Vermont, but, like, you, it has a real timeless feel here.
0: Yeah. And also, for me, an interesting thing, I all kinds of things changed in me in that time. Plus, right after, so I couldn't afford to buy this from my father. I mean, he first he said, well, you know, there's probably 400 acres of land here that was part of the family. And the orchard itself was 60, about 69, 70 acres. And my dad said, well, I don't know how to make this fair with the rest of the brothers and sisters. How about I we, I give you the business and then the land goes to everybody, all the kids. And I thought about that and I thought that's the recipe for bad Uh, stuff with family and inheritance stuff can really get between family members. And I just said, Oh, do respect that. I don't think that's a good idea. You know, I I just, I'll do something else, you know? And he, to his credit, he said, well, look, we'll figure this out. He really was happy. He really was happy that one of us was going to keep it going. And so he said, well, we'll figure it out. And he signed it off over to me, the orchard, just the orchard property itself. And and my brothers and sisters were fine. They None of them wanted anything to do with it. They had lives started elsewhere. And so, so here I was, and I immediately took out the loan to build the storage building and put the land up for collateral and jumped right into huge loan. And it was interesting because I was terrified it was a lot of money, and I, and it was terrifying up until I actually was signed and was done and it was over and I got the money, and I started building the building and it was like there was no question anymore what I was going to do. And I got up in the morning, I had to go to work, and I was smoking cigarettes. I didn't even think about it. You know, I did, didn't. Even, I stopped. I never smoked another cigarette. I stopped smoking pot. <laughs> you know, back then it was the 60s. I just, I got rid of all the junk Volkswagens, you know, like I, my life just changed around and I became focused in a way that I'd never, and it wasn't like I have to do this. It just happened and got married, started having kids, you know, those, like I just, all of a sudden became a different person than I was in my teenage and early 20s. I sort of kind of grew up in a way, you know, just sort of overnight was like, okay, I'm doing this. And felt great. I loved it. It was almost like my life took on a direction, a focus that I never had before and I loved it.
1: Were you aware that that was happening or did you sort of like, did you realize it later? It's almost like it turned around like, whoa, what happened?
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Once the storage building was built, we had a packing line and so we would pick the apples we still did about twenty percent of the sales pick your own and then all the apples the rest of the apples we had in the storage building there was three rooms that each held seven thousand bushels of apples and they had to get sorted and packaged into like three pound bags and then fancy boxes the little cell contain, you know where all winter it was like we had a crew of people in there, four or five people in the packing line sorting and packing. It was like factory work kind of, you know, just standing one place sorting the apples. And I was selling them to a wholesaler down in New York City in Hunts Point, And they gave us terrible money and they wouldn't, pay, you know, they,
1: I had... Chase them down?
0: Yeah, they were really hard to get money out of them and it was stressful. That got better, I changed to a different company, that got better. But then I started going I gotta sell to local, you know, into Burlington at the price chopper. You know, certainly the health food stores where were going or were getting certified organic and the health food stores were buying not the whole orchard was certified, oh, a section of it was that was separate a little bit. And more and more of the orchard got put in the or, in the organic program, but that whole model was just Still not working. I wasn't getting paid enough. It was not fun sorting and packing all winter, and then not getting paid for it very well. It was, and it just wasn't going to sustain. And I was ready to give, throw the towel in, and I couldn't really stop because I had that loan to pay back, and and it went through just a real stressful stretch of time, and it was a grower in Colorado that I visited in Peonia, Colorado, who we'd gone out to go skiing out there, and I visited this guy. And he's an older, wonderful, wonderful person, I and mean, he wanted to know where, he wanted to see on the map where the orchard was. And he looked at it and he saw the lake right there, and he saw Burlington right there, and he went, oh, my God, you're a, like, Perfect location for to be a destination for people to come out and sell your apples directly to the retail. And came back from that trip, just completely just determined that's what I was going to do. And I started doing. It was around September. It was when September 11th happened. It was like I think that was the second year that we started doing the festival. We had the festival, and people were so ready to gather. The festival was, you know, three or four hundred people the first year. And then after five or six years of doing it, there was, we were getting four to six thousand people coming to the, it was the local growers food fest. And we had local farms come and present a prepared dish at the festival of what they grew, like if it was chicken or whatever it was, there was food. And then we had bluegrass bands playing and it was a great thing. It was a and also it was in the beginning of the bi-local time. So it was not only did all the farms want to come, but all the people Vermont's great and supporting that. So we had such great support around it. And it grew too fast, too big, to the point where I needed to stop it because it got too big. But what it did do was it Put us on the map to more people than than had been previously. And our pick your own all of a sudden just picked up to the point where we're able to sell now all our apples just directly to the people. We don't we still sell to City Market, Healthy Living, Shelburne, you know, a few stores around, but most all the apples get sold directly off the farm.
1: So it's interesting because you went from like, okay, I didn't really sign up for this packaging apples. I want to do right. something else. But then it sort of swung the other way. It was like this festival that just got bigger and bigger. And and it was in September, just like every September yes. it happened.
0: It was in the beginning of the apple season, and it kind of signaled to everybody that, yes, we're open for Pick Your Own, yeah. and the orchard is here. Yeah. It was wonderful. What it did do was it changed my whole mindset around the business just being in scarcity around the business. I didn't believe that I could pay somebody enough money to come in and manage, help manage. And I was trying to do everything myself. And I was, like, so buried deep in the grind that I couldn't really see outside and think big and think possibilities. And as soon as the festivals started happening and people are coming, and all of a sudden the orchard was actually solvent and making money, and it was fun. It was like... Then my thinking became much more expansive. It's like, this is exciting. How can we take it from here? What are the possibilities? And that's contagious, not you know to people working with me, but just it snowballed. This is never going to be big money business, but just... So, you know, we're buying new equipment and stuff. We, could, we weren't doing that before. It's, it's a business that's supporting itself and supporting and paying people well and paying health insurance and, and so forth.
1: My family, we come here every year to pick apples. And on the weekends, especially in September and early October, it's like an event. And it's like you come and there's hay rides and there's music and you can get cider donuts and cider. And it has this very festive feel. Do you think the vibe that you get here now with the music and the hayrides and people just having fun and this becoming a destination, like, was that your vision all along? Do you think somewhere in your mind back in 1974, 75? Yeah, no,
0: no. no, it wasn't. It really did evolve. And I have to say, too, that a big part of it is the people who have you know, we're drawn to it and have co- been here and helped me because mm-hmm. I have serious deficits, you know, <laughs> in many ways. And I'm able to get people into the positions to, you know, fill those yeah. those holes. And I don't think any business is like that. It's really about people. Business is about People and the people that are here, we're a family, and everybody really loves each other and supports each other. And everybody's strengths are being tapped, and they know that you know it's like what business really should be about. But
1: how many staff do you have?
0: Well, there's my daughter who's taking the business over, we've we've been, yes, Mariah, Mariah, yeah, and her husband, and then there's Rob and Tina, a couple, and then who have been working here for 15 years. And then there's Terry, hoteling, and he's my age, 72. Actually, he's half a year older than me, so he's 73 now. But And he's been working here with me for over 40 years. And we're kind of like brothers, and we don't really even have to talk. You know, we just sort of grunt at each other. <laughs> we just know what to do. You know, it's been such a
1: long-term, Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the succession plan for the orchard. Mariah's going to, has she already kind of taken over or what's the. Yeah, well,
0: so what's awesome about this is we get along and maybe you should be talking to her about this, but she's in it. I mean, she and Abe, her husband are 100% in, but she's got young kids. So she's in kind of in babyville a little bit, you know, so and she does have her own business making knives so she's doing that she's keeping i mean that's a passion of hers so she's also keeping that that's a great business that she's doing so she's busy i'm still work i still work every day 7 days a week i love it i don't do you know at my age i don't i can't work the same kind of hours that i used to work but i do more of the things i like to do but what's cool is that she's here and I'm here, and there's a lot of information that is, that's just getting passed over to them just very gently, you' you know orcharding is such a you know a yearly one thing you do one thing now and you don't do it again for another year. it's like it happens like being able to do this over time comfortably is just wonderful. It's has been this wonderful and when they when Abe and Mariah. Feel comfortable with a certain aspect of the business. They take it. I let it go. It just sort of goes naturally. It's just this wonderful sort of organic changeover.
1: That's nice. And to have it stay in the family. Stay in the family, yes.
0: Yeah, this is like dreamland for me, yeah.
1: Dead bird Apple Brandy. Yeah. Great name. Yeah. I know there's a story behind that name.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'll tell the story, but first I'm just going to say that the brandy... It fits into one of the categories in this business, being agricultural. For us, having any kind of product that we it will give us income in a year that there's a failed crop for whatever reason, it's just smart business for us. And the tree sales is part of that. The donuts, the brandy, the vinegar, any of those things, the brandy, it's nine years between when we make the brandy and when we sell it ages for that long. So, you know, it's not connected to this year's crop. It's not enough to carry the whole business, but it's great. You know, it's good money coming in, and we could increase it easily if we wanted to. So that part of it, it fits. Not only does it fit in, like, business-wise, but it's kind of a little bit outlaw kind of-ish. Oh, definitely. That fits our style.
1: It does. It really does. When did the brandy come out? Like, when did you actually start selling it?
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I think this is our fourth year. Mm -hmm. So we did start making, we got our license in 2009, started making it, and then we went through this six-year grace period where we were making it, putting it away, barreling it, and letting it age. And the orchard totally carried the brandy business all those years without any sales which is unusual that and part of why we could do that if you a lot of the people who just start distilleries have to buy a building have to buy all the infrastructure so they're already in debt and they have to start selling so the vodka and gin that doesn't have to be aged is what most distilleries start start making and selling just and, because the orchard business was doing well enough to support this, we could wait that, have that grace period. Now that grace period is over. Every year another batch turns eight, 9, 10 years old. We're about to hit 10 years. We're at 9 years now, but we just one more. If we bottle enough to span a, a year, then we'll, the whole seller will be you know, ten years.
1: How many barrels are in here?
0: There's about five thousand gallons.
1: Oh my God! Well, you yeah, you walk in and that smell—it smells yeah. delicious. So hits you right in the face. It's excellent. So and what made you start? I mean, aside from kind of this other stream of income, like what was it about
0: brandy? Brandy and yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been kind of a, a hobby, you know. I was making it as a teenager, and I've always started played around with it been for years but never really learned about it and I didn't ever nothing that I made was any back then was any good hmm. it wasn't until I decided I was going to actually start making it to sell that I started really studying and reading and really learning and also there's all kinds of wonderful there's the, the American Distillers Institute that has conferences every year, like in Louisville or out in Portland, Oregon, whatever. And all these distillers get together and for a week do a lot of drinking, do a lot of talking, having workshops and stuff. But it's more the the bunch, all the distillers getting together, comparing notes and talking, and, and friendships that got started. And mm-hmm. we stay in touch, and a lot from that, I learned a lot from those people.
1: What about the name?
0: Dead bird. So oh, there is a story. <laughs> Back in 1986, my grandfather died, and at the after the service, there was a gathering at the house, the old family house, and I was standing in front of the hearth, and I, I noticed this knickknack on the hearth. It was a life-size bronzed dead bird. This little bird that clearly was a dead bird, and I was looking at it, thinking. You know, when I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around there's this old man and he says I can tell you a story pointing out, I can tell you a story about that that bird was found in the snow the morning after your grandfather's still caught fire during prohibition Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's like what I had no idea about my grandfather anyways I grab him by the elbow, like, we need to sit down, like, I need to hear this. The story goes, back in the, during Prohibition, so it had to have been in in the 1920s, my grandfather was in the cellar, running the still, it catches fire, they have to call the fire department, the fire department shows up the same time the liquor control agent shows up. The guys in the fire department were friends of my grandfather. They were in on the still. They knew about the still. The guy holding the hose goes, oops, and soaks the revenue. It's below zero. He has to go home, change his clothes. By the time he gets back, they'd hidden all the evidence. Nobody gets caught that night. The next morning, my grandfather finds this bird that had died somehow in the whole commotion, the smoke or whatever, in the snow outside the cellar door. He takes it, has it bronzed, and gives a copy to everyone in on it that night as a memento and a thank you for keeping his ass out of jail.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Who was the old man at the funeral?
0: I don't know. I never got got his name. And I and I like I just had that story. Now he put that story in my head and it's been in there, and when we were looking for a name for the brandy, it was like, I'm going to call it Dead Bird Brandy. And my wife, of course, goes, that's a terrible name. That's I was going, right? <laughs> it's a terrible name, but people are going to remember it, and there's a story. So the, every bottle, the story is on the back label. So the the story is important because otherwise people don't really get it. But
1: Yeah, yeah that's a great name. For more information, visit shelburntorchards.com. Thanks so much for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find more stories, podcast episodes, event listings, and merchandise on my website, happyvermont.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter, become a Patreon member, and learn more about Vermont. Thanks again for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.